Well, we carry on in our series looking at Peter the Apostle. But we have to start off with Peter the Disciple before we get to Peter the Apostle because this guy's on a journey like all of us. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the context of this little uh, event that happens in Peter's life that starts off as something small but becomes absolutely transformational for him as an individual, as a leader. And context is really, really, uh, really, really important. The context in which this event took place. Um, so this gonna, we're going to jump straight into the scriptures now, and we're going to meet Peter with the disciples and Jesus on a journey. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now here's a whole new beginning. We've just come off the back of Peter walking on water. Uh, thanks, Graham. Did a fantastic job last week. And uh, we've got lots of people walking on water this week as a result of that. So fantastic. It's even rained to help us out, you know, so yeah. So we ask this question, firstly, where is this place? What's going on here? And why does it matter? You see, we read stories like this and we say, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and we go, oh yeah, whatever. And then we move into the story of what happens between Jesus and the disciples. If I said to you, I went on holiday, the first thing you'd want to know is where? Because where matters, doesn't it? So if I said I went on holiday and I went to Antarctica, they'll ask a whole lot of questions, all right? If I went to the beach, if I went to the forest, if I went to the city, all of these things matter. Now, the reason why I raise this is because Caesarea Philippi wasn't actually in Israel. It was on the border or the boundary of Israel in the Canaan area, traditional Canaan area. And they were traditional enemies, if you like, of Israel. And uh, last week we heard about Jesus with Peter walking on the water here in the Sea of Galilee. But um, Caesarea Philippi is up here and it's right on the border. Today's boundaries called the Golan Heights. Okay, so Caesarea Philippi would be to Israel what the town of Tearoha would be to the Waikato. Because Golan Heights is high and you look over and you look down into Caesarea Philippi. So if you go up to Kaimais, you look over and down into Tearoha. Okay, just a bit of a geographical simile there. Hope that helps, probably didn't. But um, Caesarea Philippi was a place of pagan worship. And so we can only imagine what that must have been like. Jesus taking his 12 closest friends on a journey. And they've already been walking on water and doing some really cool things together. And they're doing the thing, following Jesus, walking, <laughs> walking down the road. Okay. And they come to that magic line in the road which says, another country. You don't go there. You see, good Jewish boys didn't go to Caesarea Philippi. Just like good Christian boys and girls don't go to K Road on a Friday or Saturday night in Auckland. All right? The same place, same thing. Okay? Because what's happening in Caesarea Philippi is it's the worship center, the cult center for the worship of this goat god man called Pan. Okay? So Pan is a Greek god. Half goat, half man. A bit like the Aussie rugby team. Half goat, half man. <laughs> All right, I'll move on quickly. Half goat, half man. And, um, 
And this place was a center of worship for this God. Okay? Now, like a lot of Greek Roman gods, they had a number of different things attributed to them. So one of the interesting things about Pan was that he was connected with frightening people. If you went through the forest at night and you heard noises that you couldn't understand, that was Pan frightening you. Okay? And that's where we get our word panic from. There you go. You learned something today, didn't you? That's good. If you, if you come to church to learn one thing, you can leave. Okay, but there's panic. Okay, but that was the gentle side of Pan. You see, the worship of Pan was associated with a fertility cult. Okay, and fertility obviously is associated with sex. And so in the temple worship, the ultimate expression of your connection to or affiliation with Pan was to have sex with a goat. Okay? Horrible, eh? And um, look, to be perfectly honest, if you jump on Google and you put Pan and look for illustrations, there's all sorts of statues of that sort of stuff going on. Okay, so here we have these disciples walking into this area with Jesus, and it's the worship of a Greek god, Pan. Now, here's an artist's illustration of what was going on. You see, the reason why they have this temple here is because of this grotto in behind this area here. So this is the, the grotto temple here, okay? And in behind this, this building, there was this bottomless reservoir of water. It was, it was spring water, it was flowing, okay? But uh, it had some other qualities to it, which made it pretty spectacular. Uh, it had some thermal activity connected with it, so at times it would erupt with steam and smoke. Uh, people couldn't find the bottom of it. And so therefore it was identified as an entry point into Hades itself, an entry point into hell. Okay? You can go there today. The grotto is still there. It doesn't flow as much as it used to because of earthquakes have altered the structure of the flow underneath. But the water is still there and the foundations of these temples are still there. So you had the grotto. You had the, um, the temple of worship here for worshiping Pan. And believe it or not, those are dancing goats over there. Okay, so they would get the goats to dance. I don't know what they do. The foxtrot maybe? But um, they got them to dance. So this is what was going on. And this is the scene that the disciples would have experienced as they went into Caesarea Philippi with Jesus. Probably the most unlikely place that they ever expected to go with Jesus. Wouldn't you think? Good Jewish boys, good Jewish girls never went to Caesarea Philippi. You don't cross the border. You don't go to the other place. And so here we are with this incredible discussion about to happen. This is transformational for not only Peter, but for us as the church as well. It goes like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus is asking this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, this is not a trick question, but there's a bit of code wrapped up in here. You see, Jesus has already referred to himself more than 20 times as the Son of Man in Matthew's Gospel leading up to this point. So he's talking in the third person about the Son of Man, but he's actually making a, a, a veiled reference to himself. Okay, so... So when he asks, like, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's asking the question about himself. But what does it mean, the Son of Man? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm the Son of a Man, okay? It's every, every male is the Son of a Man, biological, you know, truth about that. 
There's no complication with that. But the Son of Man was code word for a leader who was to come. And we need to go back to the, uh, the pre- prophetic book of Daniel, and you find Daniel describing who the Son of Man looks like and what their character traits would be. Let's have a look at that because it's fascinating. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is Daniel having a prophetic vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. There's your word, a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, so that's a pretty comprehensive job description, wouldn't you think? Okay, your kingdom's going to last forever. It will not be destroyed. All power on heaven and earth has been bestowed upon you, the Son of Man. Okay, so here we have this expectation prophetically written into Israel's journey as a nation, being told that someday, somewhere, sometime, the Son of Man is going to appear. And Jesus asks the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they give some sort of vague answers. They say, John the Baptist. Well, John would have only just lost his life. Okay, so uh, he was killed, as we know, by Herod. And um, they say, oh, is he John the Baptist? And they say, is he, is he Elijah? Now, The Jews don't believe in reincarnation. This is not what we're describing here. But what is being described here is a spirit of a person, a character of a person. Okay, just this last week, we had a great all-black captain, Brian Lahore, died. And they say he was a great New Zealander, a great leader. You could say that um, Richie McCaw, a previous all-black leader, walked in the same spirit as Brian Lahore, right? Does it make sense? Okay, not the same person, not reincarnated, but has that same character trait or same character traits about them, okay? So here are the disciples circling around this discussion point and they're saying, hmm, yeah, who do people say the Son of Man is? Hmm, yeah, um, John the Baptist, um, Elijah, Elijah, yeah, it could be Elijah because Elijah never tasted death. You know, the chariot whipped him, took him away before he died straight up to heaven, the ultimate Uber ride, really, you know, um, straight to heaven. Uh, could be Jeremiah, and you get the sense in which they're starting to dissipate into, it could be any of the prophets, really. Okay, so they're not sure. And so, um, but what's going on and behind is that they're circling around the most obvious question, which Jesus hasn't actually asked yet. You know, by asking him the third person, who do they say the Son of Man is? And you can just sort of imagine Jesus going, And then, all of a sudden, he lays it on them and he goes, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And, and this, is, this is a, um, it's probably a question that divides heaven and earth. It's a question that divides history. It's a question that divides all of us. You know, what is it that we have to do with this question ourselves? We have to ask Who is Jesus? And where does he fit into our history? Where does he fit into our lives? And Simon Peter, knowing what he knows, having seen what he's seen, having traveled with Jesus for these months that he's already begun this journey with him on, he steps up and boldly he says this. Simon Peter answered, 
You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. That would have been a really, really bold statement to make. You don't throw that out there at anybody because once you've identified somebody as being the prophetic fulfillment of all of Israel's anticipation, the journey is now changed completely. It is all on, you know, because if the word gets out that this is the title of the guy that we get, this is the title of this guy, Jesus. He's the, the son of man. He is the Messiah. He now has to prove himself to be that person or he gets stoned to death. Okay, or he gets killed. And there'd been people who'd come before Jesus who had made great claims about being the fulfillment of this prophecy and they were all pushing up daisies at this point. Okay, So this is a really, really bold statement that Jesus allows Peter to make. And I say allows him to make because we see what, um, what, what Jesus' own response to Peter was in these next statements. He said, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Okay? Now, names are interesting. The moment that Jesus met, Peter, uh, met uh, Simon, he renamed him Peter. Okay? But here in this moment, in this very important moment, he goes back to his first name, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, I don't know what, it's like, what it was like in your household. But whenever I was in trouble, my mother called me by my full name. Now, my dad's name is my second name, so my name's Craig Murray Vernal. And so my mother would call from the kitchen, Craig Murray Vernal. And I'm like, I'm in trouble again. And what she's actually doing is trying to say to my father, this is your problem, he's your child. <laughs> yeah, by invoking his name, yeah? Okay, so you can see how that happens, don't you? But in these important moments, and even in sacred moments or legal moments, we stop and we kick back and we use our full name. You know, when we get married or you do some legal work, your whole name's there. Okay, so Simon, son of Jonah. Okay, so this is a real pause moment. You've just said something, and the reason that you've said that is bigger than you understand. God has spoken through you and to you, or to you and through you, okay? And so for Peter, this was a transformational moment. He didn't realize just how significant that this was going to be for him as an individual because here in this moment, Jesus starts to put upon him what this call of God is going to look like, okay? And it looks like, it looks like this. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Which sounds fantastic. But then you put it back in its context, and they could probably smell the sulfur coming out of the grotto of, the, of their temple of Pan, quite literally. Because here in front of them was a place domiciled, an entry point into Hades itself. And Jesus is saying, look, you're going to be part of this new thing called the church. I'm going to build it through you. And the gates of hell, in other words, that lot over there will not overcome it. Or anything that represents that lot over here, now or in the future. And this should provide us with a tremendous amount of security. 
because the church is always under pressure. The church is always under persecution. The church has always been intimidated at a level of the way we think about life, our philosophy. You know, we're, we're surrounded by liberal uh, politics at the moment. It goes on and on and on. And yet Jesus is saying in front of a, a cult that was very, very popular, saying this lot don't stand, we win. And so even today, you know, we, we can be intimidated. We can be fearful as the church. So, oh, the world's going to hell in a handcart. You know, oh, look at the internet. You know, it's a horrible thing, you know? Yeah, it is. And we've got to be really wise about how we use it. You know, there's so many things around us at the moment. You know, you know we know what our politicians are up to at the moment with the decriminalization of, of abortion, the, the legal, le, legalizing of, of marijuana, okay? You know, all this sort of stuff goes on and on and on. And so we look around it and we go, whoa, hell seems to be knocking on our doorstep. Well, it does, but Jesus said, don't fear. The gates of hell will never overcome, okay? But to Peter, he makes this very, very specific uh, request or command. And he says, um, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so we need to stop and look at these verses because these verses have really separated the church, the, the universal church, if you like, over years, over centuries. And so we need to affirm what we need to affirm. We need to push back on what we need to push back on. Um, so let's take Peter the rock, okay? There's all sorts of, Peter means rock, okay, to start off with, okay? And so there's all sorts of little descriptions that the commentators have made about what Jesus was saying here, is saying, you're the rock, but upon these rocks, these piles of rocks that came out of the grotto, uh, you know, the church is going to be built. And it was, it's, it's, it's really weird stuff. What they're trying to do is diminish the role of Peter in the establishment of the church. Jesus wasn't diminishing Peter. <laughs> Let me tell you now. Jesus was leaning in on him and he was saying to him, because the power of God is upon you to bring this revelation, I can trust you with what the future is going to hold. And we are going to build the church and you're going to be a critical leader in this. Okay? The, the problem that we have traditionally, I say we, Protestants, is that um, because of the fact that the Protestant church came out of the Roman Catholic church 500 years ago, we look back over the fence and we say, well, everything that they think must be wrong. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Um, well, one of the things that we've always been challenged by is um, this thing called papal infallibility. Catholic, the word Catholic is Latin term for universal. Okay? So we're all part of the Catholic church with the little, the little C the universal church. Um, Roman Catholicism claims that the Pope is infallible, particularly, particularly when the Pope brings back or brings to the people an edict which is deemed to be ex cathedra, okay? Ex cathedra. The term ex cathedra was um, set up by this Vatican Council uh, only a relatively short time ago, okay? So 150 years ago. Um, but... The most recent ex-cathedra announcement, this is on Catholic website, that was made was in 1950. 
Okay, so they don't exercise this all the time. Whenever the Pope says something, people want to know, is that ex cathedra? Does that mean, does that come from the chair? Because ex cathedra means the chair, means the chair of the Pope and the chair of God. So in 1950, Pope Pius XII announced that um, the assumption of Mary, that is Mary being taken up into heaven, is a uh, complete doctrine that to be a Roman Catholic, you need to hold on to, okay? Now, in scripture, in the Bible, we read about the assumption of Jesus. That's just a, a term for him being taken up. You read that at the end of the gospels. Jesus gives his last words and then he is, the assumption happens, he's taken up into heaven in the presence of the disciples. Uh, there's no biblical account for the assumption of Mary. Okay, so, so therefore as Protestants we go, eh, that's built upon tradition, not upon scripture. Okay, so we, we don't buy into that. All right. Um, so this is the tension that we have as Protestants with the term ex cathedra. And so when we look at what the scripture is saying, which says, Jesus is going to build his church upon Peter, and then the church is starting to put a whole lot more stuff upon Peter than Peter ever intended or Jesus ever intended. We're trying to scrape away these, um, well, I don't know, these extra little bits and pieces <laughs> that uh, shouldn't be associated with this. But let's go back to this conversation or this dialogue that Peter is having with, with Jesus. And, uh, and we go back to that part from verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, so we've got these things called bind and loose. All right, bind and loose. And if you turn up at a big group prayer meeting, sometimes you hear people talking about binding and loosing and it's great prayer language, but it's all been used wrong. Okay, um, now I've got a spelling mistake here. It should be bind, not blind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But um, let's, let, me, let me put it this way. The goal of any leadership within the Jewish community or the goal of any leadership within the, now the new church, which is still to be formed, is about bringing heaven to earth. It's about bringing the understanding of what God's desires are for us from heaven to earth. And so to bind something means that it is, um, is forbidden. Okay, it is forbidden. So we bind that and we say that that is forbidden. You're not allowed to do that. When you lose something, that is that means that you're allowed to do it. Okay, so heaven has affirmed this. And whatever you loose, this is a more literal translation, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So heaven initiates, the earth um, outworks it. Remember we pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is, this is all that's going on here, okay? Um, two weeks ago, I mentioned how when Peter was called to be a follower of Jesus, there were two significant rabbis who were arguing for the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people. One called Shemal and one called Hillel. Okay, And so what would happen is people would be on one side and people would be on the other side. And when it came to discussing theology, and theology is how God's purposes are being outworked in our lives, how we understand God, people would argue that 
uh, one school, one rabbinic school would bind a certain thing, not permit it to happen, and another school would loose it, allow it to happen. So this might happen with the different foods that you might eat. So one would bind, one would loose, okay? Might be matters of how we worship, might be matters of how we interact with non-Jewish people, uh, might be how we conduct our marriages, uh, divorce. So one of these schools was more uh, liberal than the other, one was more strict than the other. So there was binding and loosing going on all the time. And so Peter is being told that he has this responsibility to hear from heaven, just as he's done in that moment when Jesus said to him, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, okay? So what he's saying is, this, what you've just experienced, is actually going to be the pattern by which you're going to live your life. You are going to hear from heaven, and you're going to put some things in place. Now, let me explain this. Why is it that Jesus said to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom? He could have just said, key. How many, how many keys do you need to get into your house? Most of us, one? Yeah? One? Depending on where you live. <laughs> one? Um, but Jesus said, I'm going to give you keys. Now, it just so happens that I've got a key ring here with four keys on it. And that's exactly representative of, um, five keys actually, sorry, um, of what Peter is going to be set up to do. So Peter has been given the responsibility of binding and loosing. In other words, he's going to hear from heaven about what it means to be a Christian, what you do and what you don't do, what are your behaviors. Okay, and so he has been given that authority. Make sense? Simple stuff, eh? Acts chapter 15, we'll find this in a few months' time. There's this big meeting, this big council meeting, when the leaders of the church are trying to work out what do we do with all these non-Jewish people who are coming into the life of the church? Should we get them to fulfill the old law of Moses? And Peter gets up there and goes, man, forget that. We couldn't even do it ourselves. Our ancestors couldn't do it. You know, What we need to do is get these people to love Jesus and we need to get them to restrain from eating meat sacrificed to idols, restrain from sexual immorality and to remember the poor. And that's it. That's it. Should have mentioned, don't listen to rock music. Don't, no, he didn't do that, did he? Here's the simplicity. So he said, this is what heaven on earth looks like. The other thing that uh, Peter um, got, got involved with was the release of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're, again, we're going to look at this in weeks ahead. But it went like this. Keys for different parts of the world. So at Pentecost in chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Acts, when the church is formed, Peter gets up and preaches because the Spirit has fallen upon all these disciples. He gets up there and says, this Jesus was the Messiah, the one whom you killed. And what happens? The Holy Spirit falls upon the crowd and people start speaking in tongues and different languages. So Peter has unlocked the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the Jews. A few chapters later, the persecution started. Philip has gone off to Samaria to escape persecution, Philip being one of the disciples. He preaches the gospel to the Samaritans, and they start repenting. They start believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He gets on, Peter gets on the phone, rings, 
sorry, Philip gets on the phone, rings Peter. He's in Jerusalem. He says, you better come down and check this out. So he turns up. And what does he do? He prays for the Samaritans. And they too receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, another key. And then we're on a roll now. Chapter um, 10 of the book of Acts. Peter has this vision that he should go to Cornelius' household to preach the gospel. Cornelius, thankfully, also had a vision that this guy would come and preach at his house. And this guy was a Gentile. Jews don't hang with Gentiles. But Peter knew that this was God coming to tell him to go to the Gentiles' household. Peter walks in, starts preaching, and the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles, and they all start speaking in tongues. So again, the key has been open. Each time, it's Peter who has been given the key. Nobody else, Philip wasn't asked to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans. He rings Peter. Revelation comes to Peter. He goes to Cornelius' household. So when we talk about the keys to the kingdom, not only have we been given authority to bring heaven to earth and to determine what it is that the church should and shouldn't do to represent itself as followers of Jesus, but you've got this incredible explosion of God's power coming out upon the three defined people groups. The three defined people groups who existed in the world according to a Jew. They were your own people, the Jews. They were that mixed bread troublemaking Samaritans down the road who saw themselves as Jews, the half-breeds, and the, the rest of the world, Gentiles, us, me, you. And so here is Peter being given this responsibility. And it's a, it's a powerful, powerful picture of just how important Peter is in the life of the Gospels and the ministry that Jesus brings to the world. Peter's responsibility, his role, is to bring heaven to earth. His role is to bring heaven to earth. And, and I, I, think we're, I think we're all called to do the same in our own way. Because that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit's about. That's what listening and praying is all about. That's what hearing the word of God is all about. Bringing heaven to earth in all of its fullness. And so when we look at Peter, we go, wow, that's a big job for a fisherman. And that's the beauty of the story, isn't it? The beauty of the story is, once again, Jesus has proven that it's, it's not your ability, it's your availability. And you don't have to have the highest IQ. You don't have to have the most money. You don't have to be the best looking guy in the place. But here is Peter, probably about 20 years old, most commentators say. He was the oldest of the disciples. This ratbag bunch of pimple infested teenagers followed him behind. John, the apostle John, the disciple John, they reckon would probably only have been 13 or 14 years old. Okay, because 60 years later, when he wrote the book of Revelation, if he'd been one of those crusty old guys you see in some painting, you know, with bald head, wizened face from being out in the sun, big biceps from pulling up the net, he would have had to have been about 120 years old when he wrote the book of Revelation. Well, that just didn't happen. So commentators are saying, here are these young men who have already been overlooked by the system because they weren't already following the two different rabbis who were dominant in the day. But Jesus says, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Not only that, but Peter, I've got a few jobs for you. 
You don't even know what this means yet, Peter. And that's the nature of being called by God, eh? Is that we don't even know what it means. When you get called by God to do one thing, that will lead to the next thing, which will lead to the next thing and the next thing. And you just don't know what the next thing is going to be. But what you've got to know is that when you take that key and take that responsibility and you open that door, it's going to open up a door of opportunity to use another key. And that's the beauty of what serving the Lord by faith is all about. And that's why you're called. You, you get to walk on the water, don't you, Graham? You know, and, and you're, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and we're going to see Peter do that magnificently, absolutely magnificently, at least three times before we finish the series. And God picks him up, pulls him up and says, I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not finished with you yet. You've still got more keys. You've still got more things to do. Don't write yourself off. Don't think that your days are done. Don't think you've made a mistake which is too big for me to redeem. Don't think you've missed the boat to the point where you're now going to, you're going to, you're going to sink. That's not the God we serve. That's not who the person of Jesus is. And that's not what walking with Jesus looks like. Walking with Jesus looks like this whole experience that Peter's having. He's just going, yes, yes. And I've got no idea what I'm saying yes to, but it's yes and amen. And that's where the journey begins and that's where the journey ends. The, the, credible, the incredible thing about this eh, is that, you know, Systems of politics, systems of religion have come and gone over centuries, come and gone. And yet this humble carpenter's son, Jesus, established something that truly the gates of hell have not pushed back on. Yeah, we've had bigger days and better days, and that's the way it'll be. But uh, I love the, the commentary that was um, I've read and heard preached by others in, in the past. It says, we look at Rome, the biggest... The Roman Empire, the biggest empire in the world in its day at the time of Jesus. And, um, and we look at these two saints like Peter and Paul and how they infiltrated Rome and how they spread the gospel under the power of the Spirit. Right in the face of all of these great Roman leaders, the Caesars. And now today, 2,000 years later, we call our sons Peter and we call our sons Paul and we call our dogs Caesar, we call our dogs Nero <laughs> or the like. Folks, Jesus is trying to tell us, don't be fearful. We win. We win. And to be on the winning side, you've also got to ask that same question that Peter was asked. Whom do you say that I am? That's critical because that's where your walk with God begins. You, you make a decision based upon the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, God's revelation to the world. And uh, again, to quote things you've probably heard before, um, C.S. Lewis, great philosopher writer of last century, said, when you look at the person of Jesus, you've got to come to a very simple decision. He is either who he said he is, the son of God, or he has the intelligence of a poached egg. You can't sit on the fence. You can't say, oh, he's sort of a good guy, good teacher, bit of a miracle man. Nah, you don't have the luxury of sitting on the fence. When somebody walks around and says, I'm the son of God, you can't give them a good guy label. 
Can you? If you met anybody in your workplace who said that, you'd be ringing somebody, wouldn't you? Can you bring down the padded, padded jacket? So if you've never made a decision for Christ before, I challenge you to do so. To put your trust in him. Because he has come, he has come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And the idea is that you give over your life to the one that he wants you to lead. And that's where your journey begins. As you give away the things that have tempted you, challenged you, and you accept the life that Christ has for you and receive his forgiveness and his newness of life. Why don't we stand and I pray for us. Lord, we can, be, um, we can be fearful at times when we, when we read our newspapers, um, when we see the world around us. It can be a bit intimidating. It all seems overwhelming. And yet we just get this huge amount of strength from realizing that right in the face of all of that profound evil, Jesus said, the gates of hell are not going to overcome us. Lord, we just want to feel that. We want to hear that deep, deep within our soul because it makes such a difference to the way we live our lives. To realize that in spite of circumstances, in spite of a liberal world with a liberal agenda around us, we can live our lives and if we live the way that you call us to, we know that the gates of hell will not prevail. Father, we, we're just so grateful for that. And we're so grateful that you choose someone like Peter because it, gives us confidence that you could even use us as well. And so God, this morning I just want to pray for those who are sitting on the edge of making a decision about what they do with Jesus. Lord, with that little bit of faith, just a, a little seed of faith, I just pray that they would take that, take that next step, that next step of inviting you to be the Lord of their lives and to begin a journey with you, Lord, that is just transformational. And God, for those of us who have been scared to open the door of the next opportunity, because we don't know what the next door might bring, give us the courage like Peter had just to accept what has been given and step into that next opportunity and allow you to lead one door at a time. So God, we need to we just need to continue getting out of the boat. We need to continue opening doors. We need to continue to declare that you are the Savior. And so we do this with confidence that you are going to continue to empower us. We don't do this in our own strength any more than Peter ever would. And we can take absolute reassurance from Scripture that you choose to use those who are available. And Lord, allow that to be us. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.